Hey, Blenders, on this week's episode, Jake and Kevin talk about interviewing Anthony Daniels. Riz Ahmed is in a new film called Sound of Metal, and we have Alex Winter on the show to talk Bill and Ted Face the Music. Hello, Blenders, and welcome. Welcome to episode number 144 of Real Blend, a podcast that highly recommends the Wonder Woman spinoff, Ted Lasso. On this week's show... Jake interviews one of his heroes. Riz Ahmed is in a movie called Sound of Metal, which we're going to talk about. And Alex Winter of Bill and Ted joins the show for a very special interview. Uh, But before we get to all of that wonderful content, let me introduce the boys, including myself. I'm Sean O'Connell, the managing editor here at Cinema Blend. Joined, as always, by Kevin McCarthy of Fox 5 in Washington, D.C. Hi, Kev. Sean, Jake, Gabriel. Kevin, how are you? Good to be with you. Uh, in Good a new location, which if you watch us on the YouTubes, uh, you will be able to recognize a new background for Jake Hamilton of Fox 32 in Chicago. Do you want to tell the people why you have a new background? I do. Uh, so uh, above my, I'm, I'm in the building that I live in, um, but there is massive, massive, massive construction going on in the apartment above me uh, for the next couple of weeks. And so my uh, my building in which I live here in Chicago, as you can tell behind me, there's there's Hancock, there's some a couple others. Um, was kind enough to open one of their empty units and let me uh, go live from here. So I'm in like a really nice sort of two-bedroom suite with a gorgeous view of downtown Chicago. And uh, I don't know, it's kind of got, got, got the place to myself. The dog's sleeping in the corner. She's, she's loving it. It does look really cool. I thought Jake was exaggerating, but he let us listen to the sound that is happening above him. And it, it sounds horrific. It is really like they're doing uh, full I, I legit called Gabe... 50% to tell him what was happening and why I had to drop out of the Alex Winter interview. Or no, there was a, no, I ended up making it. There was some interview I couldn't do. Um, and, uh, and so, and, but 50% was to let Gabe hear that I wasn't just like bullshitting, that it was actually really bad. <laughs> so, um, that's why Jake looks different on YouTube. And speaking of YouTube, if you're watching us there, hello, and thank you very much. Uh, if you're listening to us <clears throat> on all the other places where you get your audio podcast needs, Head down to the uh, show description and we'll have a link over to our YouTube channel so you can give us a like and a subscribe uh, because we're trying to grow out that audience. The Real Blend store also exists and it is, uh, well, I hit the link that went the wrong place. If you want to buy some merch, particularly around the holidays, because it's a nice gift to give to people uh, who are film fanatics in your universe, go to cinemablend.com backslash shop and pick up something really cool that has the Real Blend logos on it. Um, Diving into this week's show because we have a lot to get to. We had a weekly poll and we asked you guys, what should Warner Brothers do with Wonder Woman 1984? Um, by now, we're going to assume that the December release date is not going to hold. And so uh, Warner Brothers has not made the call whether they're going to push it back. Uh, what I would assume would be to summer of 2021. And there's been a rumor that they should potentially put it onto HBO Max, uh, just in an effort to sort of keep the DC wheel rolling and reward, to a certain extent, uh, fans who have been waiting for that Wonder Woman sequel for a really long time. If you guys don't, that movie was supposed to come out in, I think, the first time, November of 2019. Mm. And then it got pushed back until multiple points in 2020. So it's been finished for a really long time. Uh, They've been trying to keep awareness for it for a very long time. And so, Kevin, if the two choices were put it on HBO Max or save it for theaters, what do you think the blenders said before you tell me what your choice is? Well, I would hope that um people who listen to our show mm-hmm. would yes. have chosen the, the theatrical 
route. I have not seen the um, statistics of the of the final outcome of the poll, but I would assume based on our view, our, our listeners, that they chose the theatrical. So you are correct, but it's a lot closer than you think. It's that's 50, unfortunate. Fifty six to forty three. Wow. Yeah. Said uh, save it for theaters and forty three percent of the people want to put it on HBO Max. And truthfully, if I'm what being the totally final honest 1% with you, say? 56, well, 56.9 to 43.1, smart ass. Take your <laughs> math and go home. Um, I would want to put it on HBO Max, honestly. I'm to the point. I understand Why? what you're saying. I know what you're saying. And it should be. So someone else brought this up too. Oh, wait. Where, where did this conversation come up? Someone said this. Oh, a different um, interview that I was doing, something that was Snyder Cut related. They said, what if you put it on HBO Max and you let people watch it now who wanted to watch it now, but that that didn't prevent a theatrical release release later on that because Patty's such a, an advocate for it and with that the, the DC fans, well, the DC fandom would show up for it and give it a support in theaters. But would theater owners go for that if they're like, no. no, this is already available, like we need new stuff? Yeah, no, they wouldn't go for that. I mean, but- in this situation, if it was like one of the first movies when theaters are open a big way, I guess I could see it desperate enough to take it. It's a little bit best of both worlds, but yeah, you're right. The exhibitors would not go for that necessarily. I mean, I feel like it's spoilers though. Like we like it's, it's going to get out. People, everyone's going (laughs) to talk about what happens. I mean, people are going to post pictures on social media and both turn it into gifts and like, it's, you can't, you can, you can do whatever you want to do, obviously, but it's, you, you put something out there, it's out there. There's no taking it back. It's like putting something on, on the internet and saying that you want, you want that thing back. Like once it's out there, it's out there. Right. I I personally don't think it would be fair to Patty Jenkins. Um, I, 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 I truly believe that if they allowed Tenant to come out, they should allow Patty Jenkins' film to come out. Um, okay. I, 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 th- I think that if they gave Nolan his Tenant theatrical release, um, that Patty Jenkins deserves the exact same uh, type of uh, um, release structure. Uh, I think the film is shot on cameras that uh, that are meant to be seen on the biggest screen, 65 mil IMAX cameras. So there, I, though, I don't think this is a question at all. It shouldn't be a question. This is, you know, it's. It, I feel bad for this film because, again, like you said, it was supposed to come out in November of 2019, and had it come out in November 2019, we would not be in this situation right now. Right? Why did they push um, it back? Do you remember? I think I they decided it was more of a summer release. They pushed it to June. I don't know the exact. I mean, they were done with it. Clearly, right. I, I I don't know. And I'm very was, was it possible because they were hoping that, and it did, that they were hoping that the trail of Joker's box office uh, would still be bleeding into November Maybe. by that point, and it did. Yeah, <clears throat> I mean, it's possible. I I, I just I, I think a film like that going to HBO Max would be one of the biggest negative blows to the movie industry from a theatrical perspective. Um, That is a film that is designed for the theatrical experience. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we've already talked about a million things about if, if freaky can get a theatrical release, wonder woman, 1984 can get a theatrical release. Uh, And and I think that, you know, we are going to be, we have, we have to stay positive and hope that theaters open up to a certain normalcy and I think that that's a film that's worth waiting for. I do not think that should go to HBO Max. It shouldn't even be a question at this point. Now, Freaky opinion. didn't do very well. It did 3.7 million. Right. It was the number one movie in America. How dare you, sir? But also, to sure. clarify, Freaky went 
is number one. It, it it came in obviously with lower expectations. Theaters are closing again throughout I mean, the country. What, it, what were people's expectations? Like, yeah, like, I don't. Did, did people no. have a number in mind it needed to meet? Like, not like, now. like no. COVID numbers are on the rise. Like, not not to yeah. get into to this, but like, and what did what did they think was going to happen? The day that it opened in theaters, they also announced like, hey, don't forget VOD in seventeen days. <laughs> like, you yeah. don't have to wait very long. That really undercut the the message of hey, please come support it. Because it was like, oh, wait, yeah. it's only two weeks away. Also, basically. and I get that they wanted to put it out on a Friday the 13th. But like mm. the month of October, especially I felt like this past October where everyone's stuck at home. I felt like everyone was into trying to find a scary movie to watch. I think I had more people reach out to me in the, the, this past October asking for scary movie recommendations than ever before in years past. Like right. people were yeah. stuck at home craving horror content. I wonder if with a film like Free, just after what you guys said, is the first time I'm kind of thinking this over. I wonder if we're thinking about it wrong, wrong-headed now. Like it shouldn't be, um, it shouldn't be that it's a theatrical movie that's getting a VOD release in a couple weeks. It's a VOD release that's getting a theatrical release a couple weeks early. Oh, like, you're a glass like, full kind of guy. Well, well I, like I wonder if theatrical. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think now in all of this, I wonder if that's the mentality that they're shifting to is that this is a VOD release. We're mm, going to promote yeah. it as a VOD release day one, but we're going to sure. put it in theaters that have it because that's interesting. It's the know, Netflix whether model, it's, whether it's because it helps theaters, whether it's because it's good PR, whether it's because it's whatever reason, I wonder if maybe we should shift with films, smaller films like that. That's not a wonder woman or a black widow. I'll say one thing. Also, there's a lot of people I spoke to just friends who I've spoken to over the weekend who had no clue the theaters were even open by us. They were like, are, are movie theaters even allowed to be open nowadays? And I was like, yeah, they can be. And they're like, oh, I had no idea. I just still assume that they're closed. So the theater industry isn't doing a great job of getting the message out there that they can host people for, you know, as safely as, as is physically possible right now. And I think it's just because everybody's still sort of terrified. So, all right. So if they say save it for theaters, I mean, honestly, we could be looking at summertime, you know, for Wonder Woman 1984. Okay, yeah. cool. I ain't going yeah. anywhere. <laughs> I wouldn't. Yeah, I, I wouldn't watch if they put it on HBO Max tomorrow. I wouldn't watch it. Would you not? No. If they I said, but it. no, but but if they said, okay, wait, no, but no, okay, wait, hold on, wait a second. Are you going to do the interview <laughs> route, junkie yeah, route? It's different. Yeah. It's a different story. That's, it's that's not, a not, not for our business, though. Whoa, wait, wait. First of all, that that that's two different questions. That's a job question versus a personal question. Like if like like you do uh, when you when your boss asks you to do something, if you don't want to do it, you still do it. Like you know, it, it's your job. Like my, my my boss was like, you have to review Wonder Woman. Of course, I would do it. Yeah, I I wouldn't want to. Okay, I still well, so so yeah. take your job out of it. If they were just gonna put it on HBO Max without giving it a theatrical distribution, like if that were your only option. Well, that's. I mean, you're talking about like. And like only option, like they'll never see the movie if it doesn't come out in theaters. I mean, and also, is there? There's no part of. I think my biggest concern would be, honestly, spoilers. I'm so I'm so dead. I mean, I'm, I, that's the reason I wake up early on a Friday morning before work to watch The Mandalorian because I'm so I, I don't trust people to not be jerks about it and to not post stuff, whether whether consciously or unconsciously. I guess the question is, what are the big spoilers in a movie like Wonder Woman? Yeah, I don't think there's anything crazy spoiler. For me, the Chris Pine thing—that's that's the thing I don't really want explaining. I mean, I, I, yeah, I'd, I'd rather not have something that, about him. You know, it does Wonder Woman show up in the movie? I'd, I'd like to. Not, I don't want to know. I'm fairly certain she's in it. We shall see. If, if I didn't see Wonder <laughs> Woman two through uh, 1983, am I going to? Is this one going to make sense? <laughs> 
It's a pretty good joke. I was looking at the box office mojo release schedule. Thanks, Sean. Thinking that everybody's kind of saying like, okay, we got to get through this year, but then we get into next year. Like we're, we're still talking about through January. There isn't anything of note where you're like, oh yeah, that's going to be the one that starts to lure people back. The biggest thing I could see so far is February, February 12th. The King's man is still holding on. Like that feels like the first blockbustery type movie that if it holds is still going to bring people back. And then you start to get into March and a few more things again. Does that mean that the King's man is an Oscar contender? <laughs> yeah, I guess theoretically it could be an Oscar contender. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but then in March, you get to things like Morbius and, you know, the franchise movies start to roll out. So we'll see where we are at that point. Um, speaking of a movie that was theatrical for a long time and did get to play some select, but then went to uh, VOD after that point and is now making its way to Blu-ray. Bill and Ted face the music uh, brought everyone's favorite time traveling stoners. Uh, no, they're not stoners. That's not fair. Those guys don't use drugs. They're just um, quirky. California walkers. Yeah. Who? Wait, who? Rockers. What? Like rockers? rockers. Yeah. Well, they're terrible at playing music. They're really so we're, we're terrible at podcasting, but we still do it every single week and people tune in and some <laughs> people, some people even pay for it. <laughs> um, so uh, without further ado, I want to throw it to our interview with Alex Winter, uh, who is joining us on behalf of the Blu-ray release for Bill and Ted Face the Music to talk about uh, the franchise, his role in it, bringing the characters back, uh, digital versus film and all of these really interesting angles that we decided to take with him regarding Bill and Ted. So without further ado, Alex Winter on the Real Blend podcast. All right, um, Alex, I got to start here because I know you guys sort of hint at the reason, but I need to know the specific crime that you think Bill and Ted committed to end up in prison in that alternate future. <laughs> well, honestly, uh, the way we the movie structured, we we genuinely believe that uh, uh, it's the, the two crabby. Well, I don't want to. I mean, I guess we're giving the whole thing away, right? We, we can talk openly about it. Sure. OK, Um the guys that you meet who uh, pretend to be the, the British rockers um, yeah. cause such an unrelenting disaster uh, at Dave Grohl's house. We assume that's what gets us incarcerated. <laughs> and, what, and whatever whatever we got up to in, in an attempt to not be arrested, I'm sure got far worse as soon as, as, uh, as time went on. That's awesome. Uh, I figured yeah. you guys put some thought into it. Yeah, Alex, oh, yeah. you meant... You mentioned Dave Grohl. I'm just interested to know, like, when 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 someone like that gets involved in a film, like, do you get to like hang out and just listen to him play music at all, at all, uh, just offset? I mean, I know you're 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 working, but like, just when Dave Grohl's there, I, I just wonder, like, do you get to hear him play music at all? Not really, because uh, unfortunately, and this happens a lot. The way the film was scheduled, he wasn't actually on that location. I sh I shot with Dave back in L.A. Um, and so we hung out for like half a day. Uh, we had met before, uh, and it was, and we were really excited to have him, but, uh, no, we didn't, I didn't get to just hang out. I mean, that does happen sometimes. We had a lot of musicians in the film, um, you know, Patty Miller and, and we had Wynn from, from Arcade Fire. We had, um, Christian Scott showed up. We had some amazing folks, uh, around from the music world. Um, but it wasn't, uh, our time with Dave was very brief. It's you know, crazy what, how influential, sorry, Kev, how influential the, the music featured in Bill and Ted has been to my childhood. I, I think I learned about Extreme through you guys and Nuno, and he's become one of my all-time favorite guitarists. It's 
it's it goes to show just how lasting the music chosen for the for the films have been. Yeah, we take. I mean, it's taken very seriously uh, for a film for a film franchise that isn't by nature serious, uh, and we're not <laughs> we're not self serious about that. But we are. We take the music seriously, and we take the idea that um, uh, the characters sort of are conveyed. Uh, they they see themselves through music, so we always want the soundtracks to be uh, significant and. When we uh, when we went out, set out to make the third, we were concerned with uh, with how do we convey rock and roll in, in 2020, right? And you know, and how do you create a soundtrack that actually speaks to our era and the world that we live in, and all of that. So a lot of lot of work went into that on this movie. Alex, you're talking about the music, and this is something I find interesting. Like your characters are such big fans of this music. I, I wonder how much of that bleeds into your real life. Uh, did you become fans of 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 this music because your character was fans, or, or, or it was it the other way around? Like, are, are there songs and music that you appreciate now more because you your character loves them? Uh, it's possible. Um, I mean, I came up, uh, you know, music was always very, very important to me. My brother's a professional music, musician and I played in a band and, and uh, you know, I, I have different tastes than, than Bill has. Obviously, I wasn't raised in the Valley. I'd never even <laughs> been to the Valley when I did the first movie. So um, uh, we're very different in a lot of ways, but there are, uh, there's a kind of a, a love of, of, of rock and roll. Um, even though I like a lot of different kinds of music um, and the sort of the spirit of rock and the kind of liberating quality of rock. And there's crossover. Like I'd always been big into Van Halen and, and big into uh, some of those artists. And Kiss was the very first concert I ever saw. I saw them in 1977, uh, which is terrifying. Um, <laughs> but it was with the, with the hydraulics and like spitting fire. It was like that whole era. Sure. Um, and we, I was deaf for three days after that show because it was so loud. But um, but there isn't, it's not like I'm, I'm like all of that stuff is exactly what I would listen to. Cause I'm a little older than the characters. And even when we made the first two, I was like, you know, I was like well down the road into all kinds of other music at that point. Alex, no, Alex Shaw wanted gonna, to mention Eddie, yeah, Eddie we're Van gonna Halen. We're going to move yeah. off music. I swear to God, we're just, we're in a, in a oh, groove right here. I'll talk about music all day. That's I fine. found it incredibly touching when Eddie Van Halen passed away, that people were sharing clips of you guys. Like it, yeah. it was they connected you guys so intimately to Eddie. And I was curious if you'd ever got a chance to, to discuss with him at all, the impact that he had on the franchise. Um, I mean, we did back in the day, he, he came to the bogus journey premiere. Um, and I got to hang out with him there. And I remember uh, having a good long jaw with him about, uh, how much we loved his music, you know, because as I said, it wasn't like we, Keanu and I are not Bill and Ted. So, yeah. uh, we both were legitimately huge Van Halen fans. And, and, uh, um, I never got to, I don't think I ever ran into him ever again. Um, but it was, you know, we, we conveyed to him, uh, how meaningful, uh, he was to the films and we had, we had sort of gotten word to him, um, when we were making three saying we would love to have him be part of three. Um, and at the time what we got back was, a uh, kind of, uh, you know, obtusely worded um thank you very much but it's going to be very difficult for eddie to do that which i think now we realize is because he was sick um so uh it was really sad i mean you know look he turned us down on both of the previous movies so <laughs> there's a really good chance he would have turned us down on this one too but um but uh you know it was, it was just absolutely tragic uh, when i realized how sick he was and, and to lose him so young and i've just spent like the last six years working on this frank zappa movie and 
uh, who also died incredibly young um, of cancer. And uh, so it's, um, you know, it was, uh, it hit us all pretty hard. Yeah. You know, Alex, one of the things that we were discussing and a lot of discussion that's been happening now is what's going to happen with movie theaters and theatrical releases going forward. And Bill and Ted Face the Music obviously fell into a very interesting category. It was going to be theatrical and then it became select theatrical and VOD. Um, you've been a filmmaker since, you know, you're making short films since 84. You've been making you've been a director for a long time, an actor for a long time. So you've seen this business evolve uh, for decades. Uh, I'm just interested to know what your thoughts are on the future of the industry, just based on kind of what happened with your film, but just what you mm -hmm. see happening. I know it's all, I know there's, there's no definitive answer. We don't know what's going to happen in the future with everything, but just what do you see in the trends that, that are happening right now? Look, um, there were kind of two things going on. The, the, the industry was changing like crazy. Um, it has been really since the days of Napster and the, and the digital revolution. We knew everything was going to change and then everything began to change. It's very slow. Um, and the systems aren't all caught up and it's still kind of like a hodgepodge of, do you stream? Do you go to the theater? Who gets what movie? When do they get their movie? Um, COVID, uh, is a strange thing because it's a, an anomaly in some ways and it's a game changer in others. Um, mm. and, uh, uh, it's an anomaly in that people are absolutely going to flood back to the movie theater when this is over there. It's not like theaters are dead and we need to support theaters and exhibitors. And, and that's very, very important. However, it did hasten um, the, the kind of probably the shortening of windows and the big studios that were very reticent to jump on to just letting their film go to a streamer. They would put it out on a stream and go, Oh, wow. We've just made a ton of money. Everybody watched it. Um, and I think that's going to be hard to come back from on I think that, that, that we've turned a corner where I think most of the big studios now realize that there's, there's big money to be made in streaming, even immediate streaming. Um, for us, it was really anomalous to COVID because we really desperately wanted people to see this in a movie theater. We, we made it for a big screen. Comedies play historically play better to bigger audiences because it's infectious and everyone's laughs and it's a community, like a horror movie, it's a communal experience. Um, but we didn't want to make the fans wait. And we, it had taken us so long to get this film made. And we also genuinely felt that the film would, uh, would play really well to, um, to people at home. We just took that gamble. Mm -hmm. So, uh, to the, this project is fascinating to me too, Alex, because Cinema Blend, I feel like we've been covering it for years upon years. And same with you guys. You're trying to get it off the ground for a really long time and find a script yeah. that works. So if you can, tell me about the first day you guys were finally officially filming. Um, you know, after so much buildup of just like, when are we going to get these characters back on screen? Mm -hmm. Were you able to fall into the characters again comfortably pretty early on, like right off the bat? And and was there a particular like did you, what, what did you shoot first and did you choose it for a reason? You know, we spent so long trying to get this film made, and we um, during all of that we did a lot of work, the two of us, like training on our own, finding you know the, the physicality, the voices, the this, the that, working and working on the script. Um, a lot of energy, a lot of effort went into all of that. And I think both of us realized like the, the, the night before we started shooting, we'd never really just done the guys, you know, like yeah, yeah. in all the rehearsals and like all of the script meetings and even, you know, in all of our prep, 
And uh, Keanu and I, we, we would work together every weekend um, while we were uh, uh, in prep. And he came over on the Sunday before we started shooting on the Monday. And we were like, and we were by ourselves. Like by then the producers were like, geez, are they even going to do it? Like, are they ever going to actually like do the guys, you know, like, <laughs> you know, the writers would be like, can we just hear what the voice will sound like? I don't know. Well, let's just keep working on the script. You know? Yeah. Um, and he looked at me, I looked at him and was like, all right, let's just do the damn characters, right? <laughs> and uh, so we spent that Sunday, like, for the first time, really, the day before shooting, just riffing on being Bill and Ted again. And it was really sweet, you know? I think that both of us looked at each other and was like, oh, this is, this is gonna, it's going to work. It's fun. And we've known each other a very long time. We're very close friends, but we're not at all like these guys. So... Mm-hmm. I think there was a, ni- a nice moment of affirmation for us that like, it was fun to be back in those shoes again after all these years. That's awesome. You know? yeah. And uh, you know, one of the things I'm going to switch gears just re- uh, briefly here, because with, with Mr. Schumacher uh, passing recently, I know you got to work with yeah. him on the lost boys and I know you're a director yourself. I just wonder, I know it's a completely different transition from what we were just discussing, but just what you learned from that filmmaker, what you learned from that set, what memories you have. I know it's, uh, you know, decades ago, but what a, what an impactful film. It's one of Sean's favorite movies of all time. It's a classic. And we're just wondering what you remember about that experience. Um, look, I was, uh, you know, I'd been acting professionally since I was really young and I'd done some big stuff, Broadway and some, some pretty big things. Um, I'd never been in a big Hollywood movie before, but I was, a uh, an NYU film student. So film was my whole life at that time. And I was, yeah. a, I was studying film and, and, uh, so even getting that part, uh, you know, Marion Darty casted and she's legendary casting director. And so getting sort of picked out of a crowd by Marion was, was really huge for me. Um, and I don't think I would have acted in, I mean, I, in fact, I'd never, I definitely had not, would not have acted in movies um, if Joel hadn't found me for that movie. Um, I didn't really think I was going to act again. Like when I stopped child acting and went to NYU, I really thought I was done and I was going to move to LA and just start writing and directing. Uh, but he was so supportive of me and so insistent that I keep going, (laughs) frankly, um, that, uh, that I did. And, um, and that experience working on that film was really, really, uh, it was really fun, you know, because we were, basically only worked at night for a lot of it and it was like a big party and we were on the boardwalk and people were going nuts (laughs) um his sets were very fun they were very familial and movie making movies and i don't mean it's in this kind of faux modest like it's not a grind i mean making movies is an amazing thing to get to do but it is not glamorous at all and it is hard work and it is ridiculous hours um joel somehow made his sets super fun so it was by far the most fun i ever had uh Mm -hmm. making a film and uh, I got, I've seen Joel, I got to see Joel quite a bit over the years. I saw him um, several years before he, he passed away. And, uh, and it was really nice. We got to just sort of talk, you know, by then I was sort of like a, a grown up and <laughs> hold on a second. Can you not do that? Thanks. <laughs> it was about to get really, really loud. Uh, uh and I got to really tell him how much I appreciated, like how meaningful he was to my life and the direction my life took and my career. And um, I was just, it was a very, uh, a very meaningful relationship for me. Cool. Uh, Alex, I got to bring you back to Bogus Journey, if I could, um, mm-hmm. because it came up at a time when sequels were kind of like a, temp- a template, you know, like take what worked and do it again. 
And that is completely the opposite of mm-hmm. what you guys did. Um, <laughs> what was your reaction to just seeing that script for the first time of how far of a left turn it was taking? Um, we had a dinner, Keanu and Chris Matheson and Ned Solomon and I, we had a dinner at a cheap Chinese food restaurant. Uh, it was actually very similar to how three got hatched where they pitched us a take. Okay. Um, and it was basically, they just said, this movie is going to be called Bill and Ted go to hell. Okay. And it, that's actually what it was called for the whole bulk of shooting. And we were like, we're in, we are so in, you know? <laughs> um, and so it, the thing that the, cause they're not, you know, they weren't being sensational for its own sake, but they were really committed to this idea that if we were going to make another one, it's not going to be your standard eighties or nineties sequel, which is basically just taking all the same plot elements from the previous and kind of vaguely reorienting those things sure. and slapping a number two or a number three or a number four on it. They were like, there's going to be, there's like, there's no time travel. Uh, there's no phone booth. You know, <laughs> you get killed on like page 20. Um, we were so in, we just thought it was the greatest thing ever. So yeah. it was, you know, and they're really talented writers. So we knew it would be funny. Um, and three was a similar thing. I mean, there was a different aspect to three in the sense that, it needed to not only be new and fresh and funny, um, but it needed to have a lot of heart and emotion because uh, otherwise there was really no way reason to come back to these guys so much later. Um, but also there'd be no way for me and Keanu to play them. Like there'd be no way for us to play them middle-aged unless it had a lot of heart or it would have just been, uh, it would have been unwatchable, frankly. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm watching Squeal of Death the other day and I'm seeing a lot of your grandmother performance in some of those characters. That surrealism yeah. and that nightmare feel seemed to come through and that, did you have an influence on that creation? Um, I mean, look, they, <laughs> they wrote the second movie for Keanu and me. So mm. they knew what our, our sense of humor was. By then I had that show, the idiot box on MTV. I was playing gazillions of different characters. It, it's yeah. a, I mean, I came up doing Broadway musical theater and that was my training. So I was always playing weird characters and that was kind of my whole childhood acting. Um, and they knew for three that it would be fun. And Keanu is really good at character work. So they knew for three, that it would be fun for us to play multiple versions of ourselves and try to make them as extreme as possible. And they brought Kevin Yeager, you know, the genius who did my granny makeup in two, came back and did all of the prosthetics work in three um, and several other people that were, that were involved. Bill Corso, you know, the, Bill the Corso is a genius, by the way. He's a genius. Yeah. 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 He did. Ugh. He created my, my makeup for freak the film that I did after Bill and Ted too. Yeah. which is a, ma- a masterpiece of makeup effects work. And he came back and, and was the makeup captain for all of Bill and Ted three. So we had him there every day. Um, so it, it was really gratifying in that way to, to, you know, cause I stopped acting professionally in 92, 93. And uh, uh, I knew I was going to come back and do more acting at some point, but it was a fun way to come back. Cause it was like a pretty clean through line of people even. Yeah, the work that Corso did with uh, Reynolds on Deadpool, and I think he did work with uh, Nicole Kidman on his own Destroyer. He's just an incredible uh, artist. He, he's he's amazing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Star Wars, Raiders Lost. I mean, he did all the indie stuff. That's all him. So, Unbelievable. Jim Carrey. 
one thing I'm very interested in knowing is you shoot the first two Bill and Ted's on 35 millimeter. Um, you go digital on this one and, uh, and you're a filmmaker. So you obviously have seen that transition happen. I'm a, I'm nostalgic for film. I love the grain and 30, I love 35 so much. Um, I, I don't think this would have had an effect, but did it feel different to shoot a Bill and Ted movie on digitally than it did to shoot it on film? I mean, not for me, obviously for Shelly Johnson, the DP, um, uh, and for Dean, you know, for the, for the actual, uh, people who are behind the camera. Uh, for us, uh, it was helpful because it gave us more speed, obviously. Mm. Um, and in comedy, um, I mean, Dean would leave the, he would just leave it going. It was just all, yeah. always going. Mm-hmm. And because these are very big little movies, uh, they always have been. Uh, three was made exactly the same way one and two was, which is we went to every studio, every studio told us no. Uh, we eventually find cobble the money together in various ways. The films come out and the fans love them. And I don't say that with any hubris because I don't write them and I'm not the fans. So we just make the best movies we can with these guys. Um, but three was, was a very, very ambitious movie for the money that we had. I mean, it was really triple the budget, not even double what we were doing. Mm. So having digital Dean would just turn that thing on and just leave it on. And and we had Don Zimmerman edit who cut being there. And like, he's one of the great editors of all time. Wow. Um, and, and I remember being in the edit room going to visit and Don was like, it was really helpful uh, having the sort of digital approach because they were finding gems just in like off takes and non takes. Mm. And uh, they just had miles and miles of digital content. They could, they could mine because we did not have the shooting schedule to do that. Mm. Alex, we'll get you out of here on this one. Um, and this one, I'm going to tell everybody that if you've made it this far and you haven't yet seen the film, I want you to bail out now. Uh, but by the time we get to the post credit sequence, I really feared we were going to watch them die. Would that have been way too depressing to watch those two characters die off there? <laughs> yeah, there's no way. You can't kill off Bill and Ted. <laughs> that, would be, that would be inexcusable. <laughs> it, uh, hey, you did it once, though. Yeah, but we came back. We came back very, you know, almost immediately. <laughs> very true. <laughs> Alex, I do want to ask you this before you go, because I, I know that uh, obviously you play Bill, Reeves plays Ted. Um, oh. If there was some hypothetical element where you two had to body swap in a film, um, how would you even start to approach Ted? Uh, would you like, like in the, as an actor, like let's say that that was a plot point that you kind of ha- that you guys had to agree to do from a script perspective? Like, how would you even approach Ted? I mean, well, Ted's a, you know, I know it sounds goofy because the characters are really, they really are pretty, um, pretty much a two-headed hydra. But yeah, uh, they, to us, they are quite different. And uh, Bill views the world in a much more optimistic way. Um, Ted is much more reticent. Uh, uh, the way I've always viewed it, I wouldn't put words in Keanu's mouth, is, is Bill is the guy who'll be like, come on, let's jump off that cliff. It's going to be fine. Ted is like, you really sure? Yes, I'm positive. They jump and they're not fine. Um, <laughs> so, so if you're if you're gonna play Ted, you gotta you gotta have that kind of you know uh, trust and sort of blissful way of coming at the world, um, but a little bit more reticent. Which you know I would do that, but I wouldn't be doing it. I wouldn't be bringing to it what Keanu brought to it, which is so you know so many great qualities and and the way he draws that character. 
Uh, Alex, we love spending time with you and uh, and absolutely love to see those characters back together. Face the Music is really sweet, um, really endearing, and uh, and was really special. So thanks for sharing it with us. Great. Yeah, thanks, you guys. Sorry for all the technical glitches. But, no worries. Uh, don't worry about now, it. My, now my son gets to eat his pizza, so he'll be very happy. Good. <laughs> what, nice. what, is, what, what is on the pizza? Since, since it's, our all, audience... it's, it's like eight different kinds of meat. So, what? And, uh, <laughs> yeah, crazy. I mean, if I ate it, I'd be dead of a cholesterol overdose. About it's a growing so, boy. He yeah. needs it. He needs it. Yeah, yeah. He's only 11, so it's all good. Uh, yeah. good. Thanks, Alex. Appreciate it, man. All right. Thanks See so much. So cool to have Alex Winter on the show. Thank you so much for joining the Real Blend podcast. We appreciate the Bill and Ted folk for getting them on. And of course, make sure you grab Bill and Ted Face the Music on Blu-ray and DVD now that it's on the streets. This episode of Real Blend is brought to you by Marvel Strike Force. Marvel Strike Force is a mobile squad RPG that allows you to battle with your favorite team of superheroes and supervillains in a fight to save the universe against threats like Doctor Doom and Apocalypse. Power up your favorite characters and build a team to complete missions, unlock gear and other resources, and even challenge other players in PvP modes such as Alliance War and Arena. New ways to battle with your roster are released regularly and the meta is constantly evolving. And now you can sign on for Marvel Strike Force's new Deadpool Anniversary event in order to receive a generous gift containing character shards, an anniversary diamond orb, gear, and other great items. Better yet, each week during the Deadpool anniversary, players can complete events and receive even more special rewards and skins. If you want to get in on all the fun of Marvel Strike Force, be sure to use our promo code MAXPOOL, that's M-A-X-P-O-O-L, and thank you to Marvel Strike Force for supporting the show. Uh, getting to this week's talking points, there's a trailer that just dropped that we want to discuss. It's called uh, the movie is called Let Them All Talk, and it's coming to HBO Max. One of those films that um, I'm glad we're discussing because it's Steven Soderbergh film. It has an, an enormously gifted cast, Meryl Streep, Diane Weist, uh, Candace Bergen. And it's one of those movies that I have no idea. I had no clue what it even is. Like, I didn't even know that Soderbergh had a movie coming out. I didn't know that, that he had this cast behind him. And here it is coming in December to HBO Max. So I don't know if the streaming services are doing themselves a favor by sitting on these films. Um, or like, I, what happened to the days of like teasing something in advance and building up anticipation for stuff? Did either of you hear about this movie before this trailer dropped? No, not a word. Yeah, not a word. And and you would think you would hear about it because it's Soderbergh. And it's like, it's interesting because, but I feel like Soderbergh's so experimental. Mm. He's just dropping stuff all the time anyways, like shooting movies on iPhones and things. The the writer for this film, uh, her name is Deborah Eisenberg. This is her first screenplay. Really? Um, Yeah, and and I didn't know anything about it uh, until I saw the trailer drop. And then I know Gabe sent it over. But like you said, like huge cast, like Meryl Streep. I really do love um, Lucas Hedges. I think he's a wonderful actor, and I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, I, I, I like watching him with other actors. I think he's just so talented, and I find that interesting. Um, Soderbergh is really the selling point for me, though. I, I don't know that the trailer grabbed me. Anything specific about it, like really super grabbed me, except for like the cast is great. Soderbergh really, to me, is the point. Like that, that's the reason I would watch it. So I'd watch hook, it because of him. The hook is Meryl Streep is an author. Um, mm-hmm. she's working on her latest book. The books are kind of, um, personal and they a little bit are a little bit tell all with her friends, uh, her two best friends played by Diane Weist and Candace Bergen. 
And they um, and so all of their sort of uh, relationships and, and truths come out over the course of this cruise that they're on. Uh, I couldn't tell with Lucas Hedges. Is it her agent um, or a family relative? It's a little bit vague as the, the uh, Lucas Hedges is him. a nephew is a nephew. OK, yeah, cool. Yeah, yeah. So um, and again, it's just you tell me that these actresses are all going to get to play off of each other. It's uh, I love yeah. It's so great when you get to the end of a trailer and it and it lays out who's the Academy Award winners mm-hmm. and uh, and the Academy Award nominees. It's just it's like such a flex for a, a movie like this. And um, yeah, I like like Kevin Soderbergh is the hook for me. Jakey, what'd you think of it? I, I gotta be honest. The name Soderbergh doesn't do as much for me as it does for you guys. Really? Like, obviously, he's made some 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 great films, but like it, it's he's not for me so consistent that. Yeah. I get super like I, I'm like oh I'm excited that he has a new movie coming out because it's guaranteed to be good. Well, that's the a, that's the experimental nature of him though. I think he's so experimental. And, and but I'm with Jake that there there there's a different resonance to what Soderbergh used to mean to me than what it means to me now. Like I'm like Sex Lies and Videotape yeah. out of sight. Yeah, traffic. 90s 2000 Soderbergh. Yeah, Ocean's Eleven. Yeah, oh, I yeah. mean like Ocean's the guy franchise. has an insane yeah. resume, but like. There was a period of time where he just started diving into all this experimental um, shooting with his iPhone. And yeah, and I, I, I'm not a fan of some of the digital looks of uh, of the of the work he's been doing personally. But I I I, I listen, Soderbergh and Meryl Streep, that kind of like set something off my mind just slightly. I mean, oh. I, I just don't. But Thomas Newman did the score for it, too, which is cool. Ooh, too. So this, some Thomas Newman. There's well, some things I'm interested in. I'll tell you this, though. Did you see the 2019 Steven Soderbergh movie called The Laundromat, which also starred Meryl Streep? <laughs> no, that was a that was a Netflix film, yeah. which you said was terrible, right? Did you uh, see it? No, I have not seen it. Wait, uh, why, why did I hear, did I hear it was bad? It has a 41 percent on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, OK, and I, I, I remember hearing about it. But again, Jake, Jake's right. It's like it's like Soderbergh. His name makes me interested, but it's yeah. not the same as it used to be yeah like my ears perk up but it's not like a, oh my, you know it's not the same as if like oh my god fincher, fincher has a new movie come holy right. shit did, okay did, did we just have I, that moment at the same time i want to read to yeah you Best both friend. said fincher at the same time i want to read to you the cast of steven soderbergh's the laundromat which none of us have seen and it's, it stars meryl streep it also has gary oldman antonio banderas sharon stone jeffrey wright james cromwell Kevin, your boy Robert Patrick is in this. Nice. Uh, Will Forte, Chris Parnell. It's just a, a, a pretty decent. Because, I mean, cast. if you're an actor, you're probably not going to say no to him. Yeah, true. Yeah, for sure. Um, oh, can, I, can I ask you guys a question only because this just, this just hit my mind sure. and, and part, pardon me for this being so off topic. But Jake and I mentioned Fincher um, and I saw a quote from Fincher the other day that really kind of interested me where he talked about like the idea of him not having as many films under his belt as he wanted. Do you see that quote where he's like, I've yeah. only done 11, 11 films in, like, yeah. in a certain time period. And I found that to be interesting because it kind of going back to our Soderbergh discussion here where quantity versus quality and uh, vice versa, however you want to put it. Um, I found that to be interesting that he was so, that he found it negative that he only made 11 films. But and he, I feel like, he I feel also like, didn't, get, didn't give himself credit for house, you know, creating House of Cards. Didn't he? Create, right. Creating Mindhunter. Like, and, it's not like oh, he was oh. twiddling his thumbs. Yeah, let me give his exact quote just to give full context. He goes, I like the idea of having a body of work. And yes, I admit that it feels strange after 40 years in this profession to only have 10 films under my belt. Well, 11, but 10 that I can say are mine. And I'm assuming he's referring to Alien Alien, 3. Um, But I I guess the reason why I bring this up, and I don't mean to go too far off topic, is going back to Soderbergh, for for example. 
where like he has so many films that come out experimentally wise that there isn't that urge to go, oh, my God, it's a new Soderbergh movie, but it does perk it up. But when Fincher, like Tarantino, 10 or 11 films, whatever you want to say, uh, that that I don't see why it's a bad thing. And I, I, he, it almost seems like he's he feels like he's under he's under appreciated or underworked his in his career. I'm like, no, you have 10 essentially masterpieces. I mean, Zodiac, Fight Club, Seven, Benjamin Button. I wouldn't say they're all masterpieces, but he has a good chunk damn of close. great cinema. Seven. I mean, so. OK, yeah, but I want to know network. I want to know yeah. what his reasoning is for not having as many. Is he preventing himself from finding the material? Is well, he is not? This, is this the same? He I don't know if this is the same interview because I didn't see the full interview, but there it's was about another the deal one. Netflix. Yeah. Yeah. In that interview, he says he he doesn't want to. He told Netflix he doesn't want to do TV anymore because he says, I'd rather I don't want to spend the next two years trying to come up with 10 hours of content when I can spend six months. This is when I can spend two years working on the same take over and over. <laughs> yeah. Again. Well, yeah, but that's essentially what he said. I can work on, I can work on, you know, three hours versus 10. And he, and I think it was, I think that's his, I think he's starting to get it over the TV model is what it's. Yeah. And, like. and, and the, the mind and hunter thing are, still bothers me. Cause what we'd have yeah. three more movies if he didn't, if he didn't do mind hunter and, and house of cards, we'd probably have three more, two or three more it's adventure movies, you know, interesting. I but I also about that. Yeah, and what and what Gabe's referring to is, uh, and we weren't even going to get into this because we we don't have a ton of time on the show today. But uh, Fincher did sign a, a four year deal with Netflix, and, and there was an interview that he gave where he said this, and and the reason why it triggered my mind was because of what Jake just said. I feel like ten or eleven films—that's a good solid base, man. Like I feel like you know if you can if you can have ten very good, almost masterpiece level films i just found that to be interesting that he was so that 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 seemed a little weird to him i think it's hard when someone else who we adore in spielberg has 30 to 40 yeah yeah. you know so what 10 i understand 10 doesn't feel like much at all tarantino's in the same boat though he is um tarantino writes his own stuff though yeah and tarantino's also made (laughs) Let's such a story out of his number of like that's such a plot like you know like I think it's for Fincher it's weird because he said it and I kind of paused and went really, really? is that all he's yeah. done as opposed yeah. to Tarantino we know exactly I mean it's such a plot line of his career mm-hmm. how many films he's made that, that it's very sort of uh, in the forefront of our consciousness Clint Eastwood makes a movie a year <laughs> and he's ninety yeah. something years yeah. old for God's sakes yeah. come on yeah. get off the side let's go so it's qual- maybe quantity versus quality man I think those are two I very like the mule things. What that did? <laughs> yes, okay. But what about Richard Jewell? Um, I like the mule. When we started this show, um, we were an awards podcast, and this season is going to be really strange. Gabe and I actually uh, were setting up a meeting to discuss how we're going to cover this um, ongoing awards season. Because Kevin, did you get an invite to that meeting? Which which invite? It's more yeah. of a need to know thing, you know. <laughs> uh, it's just one okay. of those things. <laughs> uh, but the first sort of major awards, the Gotham Awards announced their nominees. I would put the Gotham uh, Awards up there in terms of one of the major ones that come out towards the end of this year. Uh, it usually starts a slippery slope of things like AFI, um, the New York and L.A. critics groups start to announce. But these are all groups that I would assume are going to hold to their end of the year is the end of the year. Obviously, we're dealing with the fact that the Globes and the... Um, Critics' Choice, which we all vote for, and then the Oscars themselves are pushing into next year and have extended their deadlines to January and February, even though most of the movies that have uh, thought that they were going to leave uh, for consideration into January and February have now moved so far back into 2021 that that might not be 
a thing anymore, but it's there's no chance. To... Is there any chance? That, I mean, it might be too late at this. Is there any chance they retract it and say, ah, we've changed our mind? Like, I don't you know, think so. has anything moved that would be pissed? They're like, hey, we moved to February because you said, I mean, the well, well, um, the the producers guild just did that sort of. They didn't do it by much, but they just they had. I think it was in September they moved their stuff back to like the end of February. Their their deadlines for like nominations, right? And then they just moved those up to like towards the middle to the beginning of February. So, hmm. well, they could. It, Jake, you they know, should. two additional months uh, in the year that you wouldn't have normally uh, to watch First Cow. So uh, I got. I really do. I I gotta watch. I that's like. Yeah. <laughs> and you know what's funny? There, there have been multiple nights where, like, I yeah. found myself with nothing to watch, and I thought, like, is tonight though not I watch First Cow, or do I <laughs> do I start the Office over again? <laughs> yeah. yeah, and uh, we'll see. Dunder Mifflin, out. here I come. All right, so uh, so let's talk about the nominees for the Gotham Awards because, in theory, we were saying if you hold fast to the hey, we're only going to honor what comes out in 2020, that it should open up for more interesting picks because. Yes, it's been a smattering of strange films that have opened and we don't quite have the full on push of the Oscars uh, or the Oscar worthy type films. So here with the Gotham uh, Awards, this is who we have for best actor and best actress. We'll start with best actor. Uh, Riz Ahmed got nominated for The Sound of Metal or Sound of Metal, which we're going to be talking about later on in the film, uh, later on in the podcast. Chadwick Boseman got a nominee nomination for Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, which apparently a hundred people saw over the weekend and decided to nominate it for. Oh, you didn't get invited to that. No, I did not make it to that. How's it apparently, feel? Apparently Netflix said that's on a need to know basis. Also, <laughs> and the show didn't need to know. Uh, Jude law got a nomination for the nest. Uh, John Magaro got a nomination for first cow. I think he plays the cow and Jesse Plemons. Got he a plays the second, and then whoever got another supporting actor can play the second cow. Second, the second cow. Jesse well, Plum no, it's got two guys in a cow suit. One's the back feet, one's the front feet. <laughs> uh, you, your guess of which one's going to get supporting? Lemons got a nomination from Thinking of Ending. Oh, things. I love Jesse Plumbers. So, um, I saw Sound of Metal. Riz Ahmed was fantastic. Kevin, you saw clips of Chadwick Boseman, but have not seen the full uh, film. Right. And you said right off the bat, after seeing those clips, that you thought he'd be a contender. Uh, well, yeah. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no. I think he was. I, I only saw, I saw five scenes and he was phenomenal. I mean, and, and it's it has nothing to do with him passing. He it's just a genuinely brilliant performance, and I think he deserves to be nominated for sure. Jake, what about from, Jude from Law? The footage I saw. Jude Law, 100 deserves a nomination. Um, you know, I was not a massive fan of the Nest, but I was a massive fan of the lead performances from Jude Law and Carrie Coon. Um, Jude Law is I would put in the category. I maybe this is maybe I'm overstepping here. I kind of feel like he's underrated. Like, no, like he's always turns in incredible performances and we don't talk enough. Like when we talk about like the great actors working today, I feel like we kind of take Jude Law for, for, uh, for granted. Like we don't talk enough about how like he constantly always turns in, whether it's in a fantastic beasts movie or something like the nest or obviously road to perdition. Like we don't talk about how good he always is. I love him. Yeah. I think he's phenomenal. And so if this is one of those movies that keeps him on people's radars, I think that's great. Uh, let's go to Best Actress because in addition to Jesse Plemons getting nominated, Jesse Buckley got nominated for I'm Thinking of Ending Things. 
Uh, Nicole Bahari got a nomination for a film called Miss Juneteenth, which I was able to see earlier this year, and she is fantastic. I need to see that. I, I, I got someone reached out to me about that. I really want so to watch it. I'm really glad that she got nominated. Carrie Coon did get nominated for yeah, the Nest. Rightfully so. You were kind of saying that it's one of those films where if those two get nominations, but the film doesn't get traction, like you would understand. Oh yeah, I mean it's not. Bit. I mean, you know, I don't. I don't want to say it's one of those movies where nothing happens, but it's more about. It's almost like watching. Um, it's almost like watching a play. Like where, where you're just sort of sitting back and like watching the performances just kind of wash over you. And, and Carrie, oh, actually both Carrie Coon and Jude Law have such great histories on the stage. Like this is very much a story that could have been told on the stage and would have been an amazing play to see in person. I, I, as a film, it d- didn't work quite as well for me, but I loved their performances. There's a film called um, Minari and the actress from it, Yoo Jung Yoon, is got nominated also. And this is one of those films that it was making the rounds during the film festival circuit in September and October. And I really want to see it. It was down at Savannah. It was at the 919. I just didn't get a chance to see it. It's about a, a family that's trying to get started um, in the Midwest. I don't know where they immigrate from. I, I think Korean, it's China. They're Korean. They're Korean? Okay. Yeah. Um, and it's their struggles to sort of get a farm off the ground. And I've heard nothing but amazing things about it. Uh, and the last one in that category is Francis McDormand uh, for Nomadland. Again, fantastic performance. Um, I oh, so, see yeah, you've seen that. Be. You've seen that already. I you? saw Nomadland at nine one nine. She's unbelievable in it, um, and so I, I fully expect her to be part of the conversation all the way through. That that movie is really fascinating to me. She becomes she's a, a, a Nevada worker whose um, town goes belly up essentially when the one industry uh, I forget what it is. Um, goes out of business and instead of scrambling to find work like everybody else does, she adapts to this nomad existence, which apparently is very prevalent in our society. And I was, I was totally unfamiliar with that because most of her co-stars in the film are people who are living the nomadic lifestyle. Wow. Who the director leaned into to get insight into the communities and how they, they move around from place to place and, and set up different places for a week at a time. And um, yeah, it was really, really fascinating to, to see that play out. So do you, do you think in terms of her being a serious contender for the Oscar, do you think she won too recently? Yeah, to... that's, that's always a, a, a problem necessarily. Um, and I think you're going to see a lot of really strong performances uh, coming up through in some other films. So uh, yeah, I mean, we'll see where, where all that stands. Um, I want to get to screenplay too. Because Bad Education, the Hugh Jackman film, got nominated. So, so first. that's that's being not like a TV movie. Like I know, I know it wasn't made for TV. I know HBO bought it, but it still right. premiered on HBO. So, Gotham, like like they're crossing they're crossing that border now. It's no different, I guess, than a Netflix film, right? Or even to give you an example, uh, The Vast of Night is one of the ones that got nominated in this category, also too, and that was an Amazon. So, is it any different? If it goes to Amazon or Apple or HBO. But, did, but, but was Bad Education, did it ever have a, a planned theatrical distribution? It tried to. They, did they, it? They were, well, remember, they were, at, they were at Toronto and they were trying to get okay, bought but, for but, a Okay, before, release. but it never had a set thing. Before, I mean, no, like, I, like, so. like, I think to apply for the Oscars, to, you have to prove that you had a yeah, planned, yeah, yeah. Like, like, mm. like, Bad Education never had that. For the point like, of this, though, I'm not familiar with Gotham's typical uh, sort of like regulations, like her or uh, uh, requirements for Gotham. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not sure that it's on par with the Oscars, and I wouldn't be surprised because they position themselves as like an independent film award that they don't have that restriction because it can be so hard for sure. an indie film. Or easy, it can be much easier for an indie film to get picked up by a streamer. 
I saw Bad Education. I don't know if it's the best screenplay. I don't know if it deserves a nomination for best screenplay. Yeah. Well, okay then. No, do you? Would you I say it's it. one of the five best screenplays that you saw this year? C- compared to what? Bill and Ted? Aaron Sorkin. Okay. A- Aaron Sorkin wrote a screenplay called The Chicago the Trial 7. Trial of Chicago 7 that I thought was really, really good. Yeah, but they, these are independent films, right? Uh, Gotham. Is Gotham only for independent yeah. films? Yeah, the independent film award, yeah. Okay. All right. Bad Education. Because when I think of independent studios, I think of Netflix. First Cow. <laughs> They're independent of, you know. The 40-year-old version, which I've heard nothing but amazing things about, but haven't seen yet. Um, screenplay for Raja Blank. Uh, the 40-year-old version it is, and it's on Netflix. 14, um, a screenplay by Dan Solit, and then The Vast of Sequel Night. to 13? Uh, yeah, you have to see all the previous 1 through 13 in order to understand what's going on with it. Um, so, yeah, of those five, well, I don't know if I put bad education into the best screenplay, but that's, that's, that's neither here nor there. Best feature, finally. The Assistant, First Cow. Can Jake please watch First Cow? Have you seen First Cow? No, but I have not committed to watch First Cow for the show like you have. You keep telling us you're going to watch it. You're going to be our First Cow correspondent. Oh, I'm so because I'm the first person on this show who promised to watch something and didn't watch it. Uh, the other, I was, I was waiting for that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was waiting for that one. Uh, I was waiting for it. <laughs> the Assistant, First Cow, Never, Rarely, Sometimes, Always. I love that title. Nomadland and Relic, which is a horror film that got a lot of buzz. Those are your five best feature films. So I think the success of, hey, it's 2020 and not a lot of stuff has come out. So let's honor some offbeat stuff that is absolutely working when it comes. Cool. To I mean, that's probably going to be my top 10 list as well. There's going to be a lot of stuff on my top 10 list that wouldn't have made it otherwise. Isn't Relic, uh, did that come from the um, AGB, uh, AGBO studios with the Roaster Brothers? I think it's I think it's their, oh, I want to say their their studio put that out. I remember seeing them promoting that pretty heavily on their yeah, on their, yeah, on right. their social media. Yeah. I will say I am going to be using this list of nominees. You know, I was complaining last week about how thin my top 10 list was going to be, yet there are so many of these films that have been nominated that I haven't seen yet. Right. So I'm going to be using this list as a scratch off of things just to go to, to make a point, go find and watch before making my top 10 list because I can't complain about having a thin top 10 list if I haven't seen these movies yet. All right, I'm going to ask you guys a weird uh, technical question we get a lot of these screeners on links now and it's things for even if amazon sends us something like sound sound of metal i got do you guys have ways to transfer those links to your television yeah apple tv oh apple tv is it both apple tv i do it through uh hdmi oh do you really Uh, i don't have i don't have an apple tv so i do um i basically just take well sorry go ahead you hook your laptop up yeah, yeah. I just run my laptop into my TV directly, go over to the the, the HDMI setting and blow it up. Because no, I, I have, did do something. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, I've tried multiple times to figure out a way to like log in to something on my TV yeah. to make it work. Because I, I have to do the same thing you do is hook my laptop up to it. And I just find the, it that, annoying. The Apple That's TV box cool. is so easy, though. Well, like a little behind the scenes stuff, like Netflix, for example, they they have this oh, really cool thing best. called preview content. Mm-hmm. And what Netflix will do is they'll they'll literally load screeners into our Netflix account, so I, I can like pop on Mank uh, through my TV. Now you have to put a code in. Yeah, it's kind of cool. Like they 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 threw it into the actual user friendly yep. uh, element of Netflix. Like you can actually just turn Netflix on and just watch a movie that way. So. Kudos to them for getting that figured out. And I think and I, um, I wish the yeah. other services would. I would yeah. love if Amazon and Apple just put some stuff into yeah. their servers. I think Amazon 
and Apple need those two for sure. I mean, I think Amazon has a bunch of <laughs> it's the most inside baseball talk that no one at home cares. I know. Sean, I, 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 do. I say, yeah, Sean, I, I want to say really quick. Um, I I watched Sound of Metal uh, on my TV. Yeah. But the the sound design of the movie interested me so much that I actually pulled it up on my laptop and put it in my headphones. Okay. It's so it's so fascinating the, the, the particular moments. And I know you know you know which moments I'm talking about that yeah. really utilize sound design. If you get the chance, pull it back up on your laptop and put in headphones and listen to it. It's it's a wild experience, man. Okay. It's it's wild. In fact, I interviewed the director at the Junket this weekend, and he said he wanted to tell Amazon to tell people if you don't have this like incredible sound system, just like turn off the lights, watch it on your laptop, and put the headphones in because it, the movie's about sound. You know, oh, it's all 100%. about sound. Yeah. Um, okay. so. Well, why don't we let's jump to that? I know we're we're gonna skip over a section, but let's talk more about Sound of Metal because it's fantastic, and you're a hundred percent right in that I want to be able to experience it in a movie theater to see how it plays around. It's essentially Rizamed is a drummer in a rock band. It's just the two of them in the band, right? They're the mm-hmm. only two yeah. members of this yeah. rock band. Um, Olivia Cook is the other uh, person who plays guitar and sings. Sings quote quote-unquote, she kind of just scream metals it Kevin through. would like it. Uh, I don't know. Maybe even Kevin might not. <laughs> he might. Sounds awesome. He might. And Rizamed actually learns how to play drums um, and plays really, really well. But um, at the end of the first act, he essentially experiences extreme hearing loss, like just damage to his eardrum. And the movie, uh, Kev, what you're going to love about it is the immersiveness of it. They basically just put you into his experience. Like, this cool. is what would happen if you suddenly lost all your hearing. And it's um, people talk like this. And he's like dumbfounded. He can't figure out what's going on. And it's all about him trying to um, get himself back to a place of, is he going to get back to a place where he can hear again? Is it important for him to get back to the place where he's going to hear again? He is phenomenal in this yep. movie. He's so good. And um, Jake is right. There's a bunch of other really strong supporting performances. Yeah around it um i only hope so it's coming to amazon i hope that they give it enough of a push yeah. because uh it really deserves to be seen it's really great talking about i you're 100 right about sort of the immersive element and that especially like i said if you put in your headphones you really can kind of hear what he is and is not hearing there's another small detail that i absolutely loved which is the entire movie is subtitled like at first i thought like did i turn subtitles because i normally turn on subtitles if i can yeah um and so it took me a while to realize that there were subtitles that i didn't turn the movie's subtitled until people start using sign language and then there are no subtitles and it's supposed to give you that experience of like what he's going through because in that moment like he doesn't know what they're saying so he's sitting at a dinner table and all of the characters using sign language and then they laugh and he's like i i don't know and so that's an even another element that puts us and so one of the things that's cool is for i mean we so often take for granted the fact that like you know we can watch a movie and we can hear and we never really think about it so for once the hearing audience is at the disadvantage right. for once like we're watching the movie and going wait i don't understand what these characters are saying because i don't speak that like because i don't i don't speak so i don't you know use sign language and i just thought that was fascinating it really kind of makes you not just step into uh ruben's shoes but like kind of really makes you rethink like wow there's an entire audience out there who doesn't have as easy as easy to watch a movie like like we do, you know? I also do love the fact that, like, yes, it could lean really heavily on the fact that um, it's a gimmick film to the point, like, 
we're going to let you experience what this character would go through if he lost his hearing. Mm -hmm. But the story goes so much far beyond that because he is an addict who's mm -hmm. recovering and it gets a lot into that. It's also a deeply romantic film because the the uh, he and Olivia Cook, their characters are in love and they kind of have to separate while he goes through a lot of therapy. Um, and I was deeply invested in their characters as well, too, and their relationship. So highly recommend. It's coming yeah. out this week. And uh, really quick, I want to give a shout out to, to Paul Racy, who I think uh, he gives a supporting performance in the movie. And it's one of those performances that because he's not a big name, I worry we'll get sort of like lost in the flow of award season. But I yeah. really hope that I mean, because I thought his performance is obviously much more understated than that of Riz because uh, well, he never so, really tell has. Tell who the big... he plays. Tell so, who so, plays. Uh, so Paul Racy basically plays um, a man who lost his hearing in Vietnam. Uh, and he runs um, sort of this, uh, this, I guess, like a halfway house yeah, for, like a for people. Yeah, like a, for people who ha had drug addictions, but also uh, are deaf. Um, and and the and the, the thought being that after you lose, you know, if, if you're if you're a drug addict and you're, you're you're trying to get over your addiction, and then you lose your hearing, that might be a reason for you to go back to drug. You know, you know, people might use that as an excuse to get back to drugs. Mm -hmm. So it's a very specific kind of commune. Um, but but he kind of runs that, and uh, and his I, I feel like his his performance is incredible, and he ha very much so has what I think is, for lack of a better phrase, like the Oscar moment. He has sort of a, a scene at a table with Riz that I just think is just better, you know, just as good as any performance I've seen this year. Not to keep you talking, but uh, The Nest is on VOD. And I know you've sort of mentioned it, but... Yeah. Incredible performances. Out. I mean, like, Carrie Coon can't give a bad performance. Jude Law can't give a bad performance. When you put the, the whole idea is, is this idea of, of these, like, this super glamorous, rich couple that appears to have everything. They've got a beautiful family and gorgeous house and children. But then one of those kind of American beauty things, you peel the layers back and, like, do they actually have everything we think they do? It never quite like I can't it, you know it's I don't I want to see I don't seem like this like you know cliched average audience member that's like oh like there wasn't enough action in the movie but like I kind of kept waiting on like what's the bit what's the hook what's the point what's what's gonna happen and there really isn't much other than n no one's like people are more than what they appear um, but you 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 know you you go for the movie you stay for the performances and the performances give you more than enough to stay for the performances are great but the movie itself uh, left me wanting a lot more. Did you ask her about the follow-up, uh, the Nestovers? Reach. <laughs> is the movie based on that like thermometer thing we have at our houses that you know the, the people get the nest? I have a nest reach. in my house. These boys yeah, are I, reaching. I, I'm just trying to reach. I was trying to. I was trying to do the post. Yeah, and, and Sean, the nest. carry me through this. Come on, yeah. man. Please. <laughs> All right. Uh, also, the other thing coming this week is Amazon Prime has the Small Axe series. Um, they're doing a tremendous job of marketing it because no one knows what it is exactly. It's a series of um, of films that are, I think, loosely connected. Uh, Steve McQueen is the driving force behind them, but I don't think he's directing each of them. Um, one of them stars John Boyega, and I really don't know a whole heck of a lot beyond that. Um, I wish that they did a little bit more to sort of promote what these films are. Gabe, do you know? Are you familiar with how they play out? Is it an anthology? It's an anthology of sort of uh, of, of films. I think they're all like an hour long. Oh, okay. Um, they could be a little bit more. I forget exactly how long they are. But they're it's an anthology of stories about um, uh, West Indian Londoners. Oh, okay. um, and so I think between 1969 and 1982. Oh, and he has one. He did direct one, but it was like a party, right? Like it's it's a, uh, did he a do, house party. 
he did the first one, which is called Mangrove, um, which is a true story of the man. Here, I'll just read you the a true story of the Mangrove Nine who clashed with the London police in 1970. The trial that followed was the first judicial acknowledgement of behavior motivated by racial hatred within the Metropolitan Police. Okay, that is not the one that I'm thinking of. I thought he did one that played a BFI that was something to do with like a house party and dancing, but it was still like something in the 60s. I don't know. I have no idea. I should research these know, things I've before heard, we do I've the heard, show. Since you guys haven't heard much about these, I've heard these are very good. I've heard okay. very good things about it. And apparently Mangrove, uh, which comes out on the 20th, um, is exceptional. It's Steve okay. McQueen, though. Like, when is it Steve McQueen not exceptional? Amazon Prime. Uh, you can see them this week. Uh, let's switch gears to the Lego Star Wars Holiday Special. Now, you hear Star Wars Holiday Special and you're supposed to get terrified because... They tried it once before and it didn't really work. Uh, but the boys have seen this and they have had a chance to speak with Anthony Daniels. Kevin, tell us what we uh, what we got out of Anthony Daniels and C-3PO. I'm going to uh, let Jake take this because Jake, Jake's I've been the, talking Jake's, enough. No, I want to hear, hear from your, 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 your thoughts. Just your uh, time with Anthony Daniels. Oh, Anthony Daniels is amazing. Like, and I talked to him. It was like a six or seven minute interview. He was fantastic. We went through the history of how C-3PO's voice was was captured from the 77 film until now uh, and where all of his mics were placed throughout the time. Uh, he generally does it with ADR. We talked a lot about um, just scenes that he loved doing. Uh, he talked very much about that scene in Rise of Skywalker. Uh, they fly the now? Sequen- they fly now. No, he didn't talk about that. He talked about the <laughs> one last look at my friend's uh, line specifically. I would say 50% of my interview with Anthony Daniels, he was in C-3PO character. Really? Which, uh, I, I didn't ask him to. He just went into character and answered questions in as C-3PO. It was like, it was like, it was, it was like crazy. Cause I'm like sitting here talking to this guy on zoom. And like, it's one of those things where I'm not going to ask him to do the voice. He just goes <laughs> into it. Like, like, like all, all the time. But I want Jake to, Talk that's cool. It. I think that that's yeah, cool. cool. I think oh, that he awesome. that he did that because awesome. he knows that that's what everybody wants. Basically. Oh, it was, it was like the coolest thing ever. It was it, it was unbelievable to hear him do that voice uh, and and to talk about it. He, we, we got very technical, though, about 3PO and kind of how he did the voice throughout the years. Jake was fired up for this interview more than I think he's been for one in a really, really long time. Yeah. I mean, you, you think about it. He's the only actor that's been in every single Star Wars movie, including Rogue One and Solo. Um, and he spoke wow. the very first line in, in A New Hope. He gets the first line. He's, he's the, you know, did you hear that? It's the first line in Star Wars. Mm-hmm. And so the, 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 the moment that really sort of hit me was actually after the interview when I was sort of editing the, 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 the moment for, because I asked him about that first scene, shooting that first scene um, where, you know, in the white hallway with the soldiers running by and he's with R2 and Darth Vader's about to come through and, and uh, obviously at that time, no one knew what it was going to be like, but hearing him tell stories about particular explosions and, you know, uh, it was, and, you know, and I forget that there's another uh, sort of C C3 unit walking behind him. There's another person in like a sort of a more silver plated C3 unit, it, all these details and him like recalling particular explosions and him being afraid that they were going to like blow because he had bad balance and they were going to blow him back and him being afraid it was going to mess up his face. And then. Him giving me all of those answers and me just sitting there like Chris Farley just going like, oh, that's cool. That's cool. But the, what got me was then taking that clip, a clip that I've watched since I was a child and pulling these moments that have been so, so iconic to my childhood and placing them over him telling me about them. Ugh. Like just like that's that's really what got me is like this is a scene that I've seen 
no exaggeration, no, no exaggeration. In my lifetime, probably a hundred times. Yeah. And and but to have him to speak to someone who's in that scene, who's touch, who's tangibly touching the things, the who's, the, the explosion, the smoke from the, that iconic moment went into his eyes. Like yeah, yeah, and to have yeah. him tell those stories. That's that's what got me. Like that, just like speaking to and and we we get to have that with this job all the time. Like speaking to people who spoke the lines that we say in our lifetime, who are in those moments. That's that's really what that's that's what got me is putting when I, when I started really putting the B roll over it, and then I'm like, fuck, like no, like he he know like he he knows he was there. He's, yeah, he's yeah, in that yeah. moment. You're the guy. You're yeah, you're the guy. The guy. You're exactly. actually the guy. <laughs> it's not doing an impersonation. Exactly. That's happened once or twice before. I'm trying to think of a good example of how that's happened, but I, that's happened once or twice before where an actor has like quoted one of their famous lines. Mm-hmm. And when you hear them say it, you're like, oh shit, wait, yeah. <laughs> that's actually you. As opposed to it. when you ask Harrison Ford about it, and he goes, well, anyway, they put me in uh, Kryptonite. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> you, you mean Carbonite? It must be nice to interview someone from Star Wars who legitimately likes Star Wars, yeah. right? Yeah, it's and it's and no, I gotta say, I, I will, I will. In, in Harrison Ford's defense, yes, he like I, I give him a hard time because he me, he messed up that that little detail. But he actually, I don't know if you, how long it's been since you've seen that clip where I ask him about the I know line. He actually went into quite a bit. Like I know he's talked about that moment ten thousand times, but I really felt like he could see that I was excited about it. And he actually gave me a really solid two minute answer about the day they shot. The, oh, the carbonite moment. Okay. So as much as uh, I give him a hard time about not about confusing kryptonite for carbonite, he did uh, he did actually indulge this nerdy kid sitting in front of him and was actually very cool about it. So I do have to. And granted, he isn't obviously as nerdy about it. But even Anthony Daniels told me that he wasn't a big because I asked him about the moment that he first found out that Darth Vader was Luke's father because that was such a big secret. You know, they they kept it on secret uh, secret on on the Empire set even whenever they filmed that moment. David Prowse said, Obi-Wan killed your father. They had a fake line in there. Mm-hmm. And so I asked him about the moment. And he goes, honestly, he goes, I really couldn't tell you the moment because I got to be honest with you. And he goes, I didn't care. He goes, I wasn't a Star Wars fan. He goes, everyone made such a because I didn't care. Yeah. So like, even he's not as big of a fan as the rest of us are. That's pretty fascinating. Um, you've met how many members of the original cast now? All? Everyone except, I never met Carrie. You never met Carrie? I um I, I will always regret not she came through Chicago and was doing one of the cons and uh, I really tried really hard to get in, to get an interview with her and they said no interviews but like they have spots open if you want to like pay to get a picture with her it was like four hundred bucks and I was like ah I don't know and I, you know at this point you know we're all so jaded in terms of like what do you mean like like we're not going to get an interview and that was uh, August of the year that she passed and she passed oh, really? later that December and so I always regret not doing that but I met Peter Mayhew before he passed. Um, Daniels a few times, uh, yeah. In terms of the original, Hamill a couple of times. Yeah. Harrison Ford, uh, Billy D, all the guys. Because Kev with T two, you've met Arnold and Linda together. Yeah, and Robert Patrick. Yeah, Robert Patrick. You, you yeah. got Robert Patrick on your phone for God's sakes. Yeah, <laughs> isn't he? Is he? He's T. Wait, can I say this? That, you can say what, it. Yeah, he's he's T one thousand in your phone. Yeah, my phone. Okay. is T one thousand. I didn't want to like give out. That's <laughs> no, like that's okay. like your personal contact list. I don't want to. No, there's out. nothing better than a text popping up from him that says T one thousand. Am I am I still Jakey Jakey? You're Jakey Jakey, big big mistakey. <laughs> <laughs> wait, Gabe actually, is Gabe, Gabe, please Gabe, tell me Gabe is just Gabe. No, Gabe changed this weekend for some reason. Uh, it used to be Gabe Cinema Blend, and I guess his contact up- uploaded, and now his name is popping up in full on my phone, and it's really weird. Oh, Gabriel. <laughs> yeah, it's like very, it's very strange. 
All right, let's switch to the blend game uh, for this week. And we are celebrating the contributions to cinema of one Diablo Cody, uh, Oscar winning screenwriter, who I was really disappointed to learn this week uh, did not write up in the air because I really thought that was going to be my choice. (laughs) And I guess I just kind of assumed her and Reitman uh, went from Juno to up in the air together. Didn't Reitman write that? Uh, Did he? I don't know. Gabe, can you double check that? So I'm going to have to go with Juno um, because while I really do love um, her other film, I was I was really close to going with, with uh, Tully, which I liked a lot, especially as somebody who has um, gone through the the rigors of uh, raising a child. And uh, as good as Charlize is in that role, uh, it's hard to top Juno. Juno is just one of those films that has so much personality. The oh, Reitman and Sheldon Turner says Gabe uh, wrote up in the air. I just, I don't know why I assumed that she jumped to up in the air with him. Uh, Juno was the one that got her, uh, her Oscar nomination. Fantastic script. Uh, Yeah. Her win. That's right. Uh, Fantastic script for everybody involved in it. Uh, Jason Bateman's fantastic. Jennifer Garner, JK Simmons, obviously Ellen page. Um, Just, uh, it came around at the perfect time. It was one of those, Really cute without being cloy uh, in terms of the the type of dialogue that was worked in. Sometimes people can totally overdo it. I, it's, I think Edgar Wright sometimes falls into that victim a little bit. Like, that's why Scott Pilgrim doesn't work as well for me. Sometimes I think Edgar Wright's Dude. a little bit too... Dude. Oh, I love Scott Pilgrim. I Scott know. Scott Pilgrim is perfect. Uh, is it? I don't it's great. Know Scott it is great. Perfect. Um, but I think that Diablo Cody absolutely deserved to win the Oscar that year. And so Juno is going to be my pick. Um, Kevin, where are you at? Uh, I went with Jennifer's Body uh, and only because Lauren loves that film so much. So I've watched it a lot more than I would have because uh, I remember seeing it in theaters and really thinking it was great. But I never really revisited it until Lauren kind of shared her passion for it. Um, so that's become a favorite film in our house. Uh as much as I love Juno and Young Young Adult, she wrote as well, right? Mm-hmm. And obviously, you mentioned that in uh, Tully. Was that the, mm-hmm. another, the mm-hmm. other one she wrote? We were talking about that just now. Um, I Jennifer's body to me just strikes a great tone. Uh, I like the R-rated element of her script because uh, Juno, I think, was PG thirteen, I believe. I think so. Um, I, I want to say Young Adult was R. I could be wrong on that, but yes. Um, but I, I like her R-rated material, and I think that uh, Jennifer's body just captured a a certain tone that I really enjoyed. I, I love high school films, but I also love when they take a twist on certain genres. Um, and everybody in that film is great. I remember we had Adam Brody on our show who was, who was very passionate about that film and kind of wished it did better. And not a lot of people saw it. Um, Megan Fox is amazing in it. Amanda Seyfried's amazing in it. Uh, Johnny Simmons, who I really, really like. Uh, I think that's his name. He's a, he was also um, he's just a, he was also in uh, 21 Jump Street. He was really great. I think that's his name, but he's really, really great in the movie. Um, and uh, yeah, I think that's my favorite. And I know that uh, uh, Karen Kusama directed it, but I, I think that uh, Diablo Cody's script is just brilliant. I got to tell a funny young adult story. Is young adult your pick, Jake, or do you have a different pick? Is it your pick? Let me tell a funny story really fast. Go. They filmed parts of that, big chunks How of it. How did you know that? On, I have no idea. I, I did not know that. Um, I think it's great that we all pick something different. <laughs> they filmed huge chunks of young adult on Long Island, uh, where I'm from. And they filmed actually in my town in Massapequa Park, which I had no idea. But there's a moment where Charlize Theron comes out of a store and crosses a street and she's going down a side street. And the camera pans around her 
and it is the main street in my town in Massapequa Park where I grew up. And there's a Carvel and there's a like Carvel. a restaurant that has changed hands multiple times. And the camera pans around her on a block that I have gone down a bazillion times over the course of my life. And I didn't know it was coming and I'm sitting there watching it. And it was like an outer body experience. That's weird. Where all of a sudden there is my hometown like up on the screen on a block that I have walked on <laughs> multiple times. Hmm. And so I did that junket and I sat down across from Reitman and I said, you filmed a Massapequa Park. And he was like, what the f- <laughs> what? That's the weirdest opening question that I've ever heard. And he was like, yes, I did film in Massapequa Park. And I told him the whole story and he was blown away. But it was really bizarre to see your hometown's street uh, broadcast in a film when you're not anticipating it. I assume that's, that's not why you loved Diablo That's Cody specifically before. why I love Young Adult. Before, <laughs> Young I, Adult. before I get my reasoning, I have a random test. I'm going to see if, if Kevin can pass it. Kevin, who directed my backdrop right now? I'm going to see if he can get my line of thought. I mean, I feel like you're leaning towards like an Abrams thing, but it, uh, right now I'm trying to figure out... Uh, I don't I, know. I, I could potentially be reaching. Hold if I were to tell you that Cameron Crowe directed my backdrop. Oh, Vanilla Sky. Because it does look like Vanilla Sky. Doesn't it have like a Vanilla Sky look? It does look like Vanilla Sky. I see it. I'm sorry, Gabe. They got to reach at some point. I wanted to reach at some point. Um, I I really, you know, with uh, Diablo Cody's movies, they all speak to sort of obviously a certain group of people. Juno didn't really, you know, and I like all of her scripts. But some just speak to me more than others. Teen pregnancy doesn't really speak to me as much. Um, uh, so with, with Tully, I really liked Tully. Really enjoyed sort of the, the final act of it. Um, but obviously, motherhood isn't something that's going to strike a personal chord. Uh, a delayed ad- adolescence. The delayed adolescence. Um, sort of a, uh, a, a refusal to, to grow up for better or worse. Uh, is something that speaks to me a little bit more so on a different level than uh, than teen pregnancy or motherhood. Um, I really, but I also think that it's the um, personally, I think it's the best case of her writing perfectly matching up with the people who are speaking it, specifically with uh, Charlize Theron. <coughs> I, I think her 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 words in that script coming out of Charlize Theron is a, a match made in heaven. And uh, I, I think the script makes Charlize better. Charlize makes the script better. Um, Patton Oswalt is fantastic in that um, and gets a lot of really great moments to shine. Um, that That's the one that's uh, really kind of resonated with me on more so of a level beyond, oh, this is good writing and that's a clever one-liner and that's a good script. More like that's, This is the one that kind of, for me, took it to the next level with Diablo Cody. I absolutely would love a, a world where her and Charlize are doing a movie every couple of years together. Yeah. Like, Because yeah. you're right. I think that they both make each other better. That's a perfect way to put it. And uh, yeah, I would love to see the two of them collaborate more often uh those are basically the three movies that were singled out by our users as they submitted michelle garrist uh rachel kh john palmer and others chose juno a uh, guy anthony emma and a few others went with jennifer's body and then matt Posentino, andy travers jose Vila jr and many others went with the young adult um and nobody went with uh up in the air because she didn't write it although i really wanted to uh this week uh <laughs> thank you everybody for participating and for next week you will be playing along with hashtag Angela Bassett blend. Oh, We're going to be celebrating Angela good Bassett. Good one. Uh, God, so let she's us know so great. Via email. Um, and, how, and how great is she? Could you say really quick, how great is she to interview? How great of an interview is she? She is fantastic. Oh, awesome. She is a oh, rock awesome. star of an interview. I and just, 
Someone who not by, by no means does this matter in the grand scheme of things, but one of the most stunningly beautiful women I think I've ever interviewed. And like you just walk into a room and you just go, wow. Yep. And then she's sharp and smart and funny. Oh, I love her. Well done. I, Good pick. It's so true. I was able to interview her recently for the Mission Impossible films and just mm-hmm. did her last week for Soul. And she oh, was cool. phenomenal uh, in both of those opportunities. So, um, yeah, she's great. So we will celebrate her films. Uh, hashtag Angela Bassett Blend. So let us know your pick either on social media or email us at realblendedcinemablend.com. Be also, please be sure to drop us a review uh, at realblendedcinemablend.com and we will read it here on the show. We're going to be doing our next premium episode uh, for the folks for the folks who subscribe to that bonus episode. And we're going to be doing holiday movies and what we grew up watching. Uh, so the Real Blend holiday release. What is the Real Blend holiday release schedule announcement? Gabe, I assume that that's something you're going to want to jump in and talk yes, about. Yes, I will jump in just to let folks know <laughs> that next week we will not be having a regular episode of Real what? Blend. We are taking a break for the holidays. <gasps> Don't fret, uh, premium subscribers. The premium episodes will continue to flow as they should every Monday. Um, and next week we will, unless something catastrophic happens... Um, we will be having an interview with Paul Bettany and Alan Ball in lieu of a regular episode. So still plenty for of Roblin. For Uncle Frank. Um, for Uncle Frank. So we'll be back soon. Uh, well, in two weeks, I guess. And in the meantime, keep up with our expeditions at Jake's Takes, at Kevin McCarthy TV, and at Sean underscore O'Connell. And we'll be uh, back soon. Bye, guys. Hubie! No! Stop! Stop with the Hubie! <laughs> Hubie! <laughs>